Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where you look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we have two guests with us today and they both have the same name. So Mike and Michael, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here again. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, this week... Because uh, West Side Story just came out last week and we've got the tragedy of Macbeth coming out pretty soon, we are going to be talking about Shakespeare adaptations. And so basically, if it's a direct uh, adaptation from Shakespeare or something, you know, Shakespeare adjacent. And then my wife, actually, when I told her this idea, she's like, well, isn't pretty much everything come from Shakespeare? And I'm like, pretty close. (laughs) Pretty close. I did debate putting... Oliver Stone's Nixon in my picks just because like well it's, it's Shakespearean in style somewhat <laughs> <laughs> I was like I think that might be I'm already in trouble for putting Citizen Kane as my favorite Christmas movie so <laughs> I feel like I've broken enough rules in the last month fine <laughs> yeah so uh we brought on some Shakespeare scholars right <laughs> <laughs> yes it's a bit of an exaggeration experts wow. in their field written many a book on old William Shake. I used to have a big, huge book that was all the plays that I carried through high school and college. Regretfully, nice. I, could, I couldn't find it prior to this call or I would have been showing you it on Zoom. Man, this is going to make me sound like such a punk kid, but I know my buddy had like an, on his phone, he had the f- whole canon of Shakespeare texts. I don't think he ever read it because who would want to read it on an iPhone circa 2009, but they were all there in case one wanted to impressive so uh, right i mean to be clear my background in this is i took a class in shakespeare as part of my english minor that's pretty much it as far as formal shakespeare schooling but i have uh, certainly done some you know studying on my own um uh, roger ebert once said that one of the great tasks of a lifetime is to become familiar with the great plays of shakespeare which uh it's a credo I took a bit to heart. Um, so I've read some books outside of wow. studies and, uh, you know, I try to revisit it as much as possible. And film is one of the main places where I can visit Shakespeare because, you know, reading the plays in text form only goes so far. And, and I just don't get out to the live theater very often. So film adaptations are a great way to sort of explore that our city Mm -hmm. has a every year they actually have two shakespeare plays every summer they have like this big tent right by the riverside and so they always put on shakespeare plays every summer and it's fantastic and sometimes they'll do like a contemporary theme sometimes they'll do a traditional theme but yeah it's always great and when i had a study abroad semester in london i uh, had the privilege of taking a minor class in theater which basically just meant going to London theater shows. Nice. And uh, you know, we, we went to the, the Globe recreation and you know read some plays there that I hadn't read in high school. But uh, the one that interested me a lot, um, we'll kind of get into themes here where radical interpretations, but uh, I had the privilege of seeing a, a Bollywood recreation of Twelfth Night, oh. which was wow. very strange. And uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot, but I, I still have no idea what happened in the play because I didn't read it. I was at that stage where I stopped reading and just kind of faked my way through college. So, nice. I don't know. <laughs> it's called most of it. 
We've all been there. <laughs> yeah, I took one um, English course in university in my undergrad on uh, Shakespeare. It was a global Shakespeare course. And I'm pretty sure the only reason I took it was because it was an online course that could fit in my schedule easily. And I knew we were going to watch Throne of Blood, which was good enough for me. Um, and then we also did The Tempest, which I have no memory of. I can't describe in any detail. And we read Hamlet specifically so we could watch on, I can't remember where exactly, but it was a Middle Eastern stage play that we watched a recording of that was actually quite good, very minimalist. And I really enjoyed it, but I don't think I could speak too intelligently about that one either because that was a long time ago at least it feels like it i remember i used uh the tempest as an opportunity to write an essay about jurassic park (laughs) they're they're both set on an island that's exactly what it was (laughs) this is the level of uh of the advantage of setting setting your stories on islands that was that was what my essay was oh man okay well, and shall we start a, talking about some? It's shit? a valid position to take. Yeah, well, I, I I think I'd cringe if I went back and read what I wrote again. But are you, are you compare, comparing Nedry to Caliban or something? Or <laughs> oh, I don't remember. That was ages ago. But it very well could have been. <laughs> you got to put something together. Yeah. Um. Yeah. yeah. Let's uh. Let's get rocking and rolling. Right. Michael, I think you're actually starting us up this week. All right, uh, so I am going to be beginning with a uh, scene from the 1995 uh, Ian McKellen starring uh, adaptation of Richard III. Um, and the main reason I chose this was just to kind of examine um, the challenges of setting a Shakespeare play that's true to the original text in what you'd call modern dress. Um, because it's a film um, that transposes the Richard III into the 1930s and kind of makes it an allegory for kind of the rise of fascism. And so, but, so the the practice of staging Shakespeare in modern dress, you know, is a pretty common thing in the 20th century. It's done to sort of uh, switch things up a bit from the usual and bring uh, new insights to the play by kind of comparing it to a different milieu than the original, like uh, Renaissance England. Um, but um, it, it can get a little awkward, uh, especially when it comes to situations where technology has changed from the original text or just references to specific people in geography. And often the convention is to just kind of go forward, go ahead, just, you know, talk about uh, swords when people are holding guns. Um, Just ignore it. Just audiences will get it. Uh, The other extreme is to kind of find just elaborate excuses for this. Um, Most prominently in like the 1996 uh, Bos Lerman Romeo plus Juliet, which we'll be talking about that film a little bit later. There's fun to be had with it, but there's some silliness in it too. And one of the sillier things is how in an early like sword fight with guns, they like zoom in and you're seeing that it's a sword brand gun. So that whenever they say swords, it it makes sense, (laughs) Um, which that, that goes a bit far. So this scene I'm going to be looking at um, 
I think does a good balance between keeping the original text while also finding a justification for it. Um, and it's very late in the play uh, and in the film uh, at the final battle scene where in the play, uh, Richard III is uh, removed from his mount and he's on foot and he shouts this famous line, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse which in a version set in the 1930s isn't going to make a lot of sense because everyone's driving cars. So the way they restage it is they just have him crash his car and it's not working anymore. And he shouts the line, um, horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Um, and in this context, the implication is less, I just need a horse and more these cars automobile contraptions are unreliable. If only I just had a horse, those things were reliable. Uh, and then he proceeds to get shot in a bloody shootout. Um, so uh, that I think was just, a, I just wanted to pick that little moment up as a kind of an interesting way to uh, take a famous line that you can't cut out of the play. That's like a line people are waiting for and still make it work in a new milieu. And uh, uh, change the, switch things up in that in that way. A great pick. I have not seen this Richard the Third, and I have also not read the play. It was not. I find that my high school experience they just give us the same plays over and over again. I read I had Hamlet at least three times in high school, um, but uh, I did watch the scene when I saw it was in your list, and I think it's an interesting example of kind of doing both of what you said, where it's on the one hand it is modifying the context of the line where it's not on the one hand it's it's not emphasized enough that you can just go with it but it also like it does take on a new context the line in the because his vehicle is like been derailed and if he just had a horse he could escape well it's a nice example of kind of having your cake and eating it too or not having to mm -hmm. make an overt change but the material is still changed in a way that breathes new life into it it's fun well, to me it's adding a layer i mean do you think about uh, in the original text, uh, a horse during peacetime is adding almost zero value to a king, right? And the reason why the line works so well in the text is he's willing to give up everything that he has. His entire kingdom, he's spent the entire play scheming to get to just for a means of being out of his current situation. Now, there's some dual interpretation there as to whether or not he means to flee and just save himself or whether he means to actually continue the fight. And if you notice during the, during the scene, he shoots a, a member of uh, Zantraj in the car where the person was saying, if you, you know, we'll get you a horse, you know, maybe we can get you to help you, help you escape. And he says, uh, escape, you know, kind of question mark, slave. And he's, basically what he's meaning is that, you know, I, want to continue the fight. So it's interesting that they kind of keep that in there. There is some dual interpretation still present in the text. And it's still the last line he says in the play or in the film. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, just to be clear, this, this movie is not necessarily my favorite um, movie by any means. As far as Shakespeare adaptations go, it's, it's pretty neat. That's how I'd put it. Um, it's, it has a great central performance by McKellen, and it does some interesting little 
switch ups. And I like the basic idea of resetting the play uh, in the rise of fascism, but I'm not saying it's like, it's hardly the greatest cinematic adaptation. Um, it's directed by this guy named Richard Loncrane, who I, I'm not sure who that is. He's not exactly uh, Orson Welles here. But he does sound but, like somebody that would sh- direct Shakespeare for sure. <laughs> indeed. Uh, and by all accounts, this, this movie was actually more driven by Ian McKellen. He just needed this guy to direct. Like Ian McKellen has a screenwriting credit. So I th- think a lot of the ideas were from him. Written by William Shakespeare and Ian McKellen. It's Richard III. Yeah. Well, it's like um, the new uh, the new credits for Tragedy Macbeth, where it's like Joel Cohen and William Shakespeare. It's like, damn, <laughs> Ethan got replaced pretty hard. Um, had McKellen done, like, I'm sure he played Richard III before, but had he done a version on the stage that was similar in style to this film before the film? I'm not sure. I mean, Ian McKellen, his whole Shakespeare uh, pedigree, his resume is probably so long. I, I can't imagine there's anything he hasn't done at this point. But um, as far as the, the theme itself, I do think the rise of fascism does make sense within Richard III because Richard III is set during a lull in the War of the Roses. Uh, there'd seemingly been peace brought by the conquest. That's what that whole like opening dialogue is about. The winter of our discontent made sun by the but made made summer by the house of york uh the son of york sorry uh i'm not an actor (laughs) um and there's a similar parallel there to the 30s a time between the first and second world war when seemingly war had ended peace was brought but then this one solitary machiavellian schemer seemingly started up all sorts of trouble again and then look what look where we are more war so it was an interesting theme to bring to the table and this one scene with the horse in the car i think it's just an it's a good example of how they're able to make it work uh more on the small level as well as on the large level right i think that's a great pick yeah it's interesting how this film betrays its fascist parallel as well, especially when you look at, at it in comparison to something like the Olivier version. Um, there's a whole scene where there's a conspiracy to for Richard to feel out from the Lords whether or not they'll support him um, having a kingship over the two imprisoned uh, nephews that are in tower. And in this version, they're in a bunker while um, McKellen is in front of a mirror, kind of, you know, a stage mirror that could play and uh, trying to doll himself up and like going out there to, to act as a performance. But in the scene where he's accepting the crown, the banners that are there, that are supposed to evoke the um, Third Reich banners. Mm-hmm. They're already there. They're not necessarily ones that Richard would have created. It's something that he would have had an entire apparatus to to um to support him um so i I feel like this movie has a lot to say about what those structures are that puts those types of people um on the the ascendancy to to where they would end up yeah and obviously the fact that you know the play is about monarchies and dynastic rule 
is a little different than you know at rise of actual fascism which was at least initially done through democratic vote um and sort of populism uh richard iii did not was not really someone who needed to worry that much about getting the will of the people so to speak to some extent he did but it wasn't his primary concern it was all about sort of court intrigue but the, the parallels are still there. Um, you had mentioned the Olivier version. Um, are you are you a fan of that one? Um, I, I watched it as I was binging versions to or potential entries to choose for this, oh. and I did like it. It was the first time I, I watched it, but it's very much a product of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, soliloquies are given directly to the camera, something that this film bother uh, borrows, and something that it's taking from the original stage presence. Um, but I can see why, um, you know, in the year that it was released, Peter Sellers had, was mocking it on, um, on a, uh, a British TV show and mm-hmm. acting like him. Yeah, it's um, probably my least favorite of the three big Olivier Shakespeare movies. Um, I don't have any particularly, like, profound reason to say that it's been a while since i've seen it It, i may be able to revisit my issues with it are largely superficial i I just think the guy has a very dumb wig through the whole thing and it's not doing anything interesting like the henry v adaptation where he's um going from stage to set and bringing invoking world war ii patriotism and it doesn't have the sort of black and white almost kind of mood of his hamlet version either so it's probably my least favorite of the three so i I hear a lot of people saying it's like the best of olivier's movies i i don't get it um to me it's the most straightforward and kind of uninteresting of the three but again maybe i need to give it another look i I just i'd say give it a chance just to, to see if you take anything new away from it um I was kind of shocked to see how much I saw of Lord Farquaad in Olivier's Richard III um, on, on watching it. And, and it's very clear where that comes from after seeing that movie. <laughs> Thanks. Kids in 2001 were big Olivier, Richard III <laughs> aficionados. I would know. I was one of those kids. I picked up on that in theater. <laughs> All right. Well, let's um, let's move from... 1930s fascism to a different type of um adapt historical adaptation i guess so dan do you want to go with your pick here sure i'm gonna talk about akira kurosawa's ron which i was going to avoid doing kurosawa shakespeare because like it's the obvious choice especially coming from me who likes a lot of shakespeare films but i'm not nearly as well versed as our guests and i'm definitely more kurosawa fan than i am william shakespeare so that maybe it'd be fun to you know do something else then i thought no i don't want to do anything else i like my comfort zone it's (laughs) it's nice um and the moment i'm choosing comes right after a massive moment arguably one of the most iconic images from the film which is when uh kurrigan who's this military advisor type confronts lady kate who i believe is the equivalent of edmund in king lear and uh, basically confronts her over her portrayal and how that's at least that's what Wikipedia says she's the equivalent to she doesn't she meets a very her character comes to a very different point which is uh, part of what I want to talk about here but uh, 
he's confronting her over how she, her plans have laid uh, his master's kingdom to ruin and everything's for naught and the enemy's at the gates, everything's falling apart. And you have this really famous shot of, she gives this very short uh, little speech about how she did it for vengeance for her family. The camera tilts up. We see Kurogan walk over. His sword slices down. Blood smears against the wall in the back. It's just so cool. Such an amazing shot. But that's not my moment because that, that would be cheating because that's arguably the most iconic thing that happens in the film, either that or the flaming arrows. Um, but right after, uh, Kurogan turns to uh, his master and says... Um, my lord, we are undone. Prepare to die. I will follow you directly. And then goes back to, you know, fight in this impending battle. And what I love is just this thick sense of doom and fatalism. That there's no, there's no glory. There's no hope of surviving. It's just, it's over. We're going to die. Let's go. And I just, I, as such a, a microcosm, as we like to say on the show, of how bleak and fatalistic this whole film is just like there's no hope there's no future like near the end of the film there's even a scene where like a, a scroll of prophecy is is lost in this like cavern and it's like there's no future we are at like an apocalyptic end even though technically it's not an apocalypse and i think this captures it so perfectly where it's like they know they're going to die and there's nothing they can do but march headfirst into it and I, it's been a long time since I've read King Lear, not since high school. And I think this is actually the only adaptation I've seen other than a made-for-TV Western with Patrick Stewart adaptation of King Lear that, again, I watched in high school. And you school. chose Kurosawa over that one? I know. <laughs> I, I was like, King nice. of Texas, Kurosawa. It was, it was tough. But um, the play is certainly a rather... is quite dark but it's not this level of like bleak like the ending is there's a there's a spark of potential hope or a future i think you could argue i guess it depends on the interpretation michael's giving me looks so maybe he'll correct me here but i think there's some degree of like life goes on and i don't get that from this film which is also reflective of where kurosawa was generally at this point both it and Kagamusha are like so much, not that he hadn't made bleak films before, but other than Throne of Blood, these are kind of the two that really stand out to me in terms of being so stark. Um, but I just, I, the other thing I love too is just the the sense of inevitability that like not even trying to save themselves or, you know, make it out of this okay. Like it's, death is inevitable and there's nothing we can do but face it head on. So that's my moment. Uh, uh, thoughts? <laughs> well, um, I don't know. The thing about King Lear to me is always just what, what always stands out to me about that play is just how bleak it is. Um, it gives you a certain feeling that um, it's, it's, it's more extreme than all in most of Shakespeare's other tragedies, I think, where gives you this idea that not only has uh, King Lear been undone, but the whole kingdom is just in chaos because of that thing. Like, yeah, Hamlet, Hamlet dies. I don't think the rest of Denmark cares that much in the grand scheme of things. But I do think that there's a lot more chaos unleashed at the end of King Lear. I feel like 
this is a play where it's unclear who is going to take over England after the events, depending on whether you read two different like texts of the play that have survived. Uh, one text suggests one person is going to take over. The other one suggests another person is going to take over. And that's the level, that's the very, very most glimmer of hope you get out of the ending of that. Um, it just feels a lot more chaotic than most of Shakespeare's other plays. Um, so I'm not sure I agree that there's that that's much fair. more hope in the play, but I, I take your point. I think Kurosawa does drive it home a little bit more. To me, the real difference between the two is just the main character. Um, yeah. King Lear, to me, the, the character King Lear is someone who there are there's more good in him than there is in the the guy from Ron. I think the guy from Ron really is just yeah, he's a bastard. Yeah, <laughs> this awful conqueror. And that's the thing too. With the other thing that stands out to me is like, and again, it's it's been a while, but I want to say the Lady Cade equivalent, and it's a very loose equivalent. But in King Lear, like there's they still die, but there's some sort of redemptive, maybe not redemptive act, but there's some sort of mending of the conflict towards the end between him and Lear. Whereas Lady Kate is like, yeah, I brought ruin because you killed my family and I'm glad I did it. And I do it again. Like, it's so like, there's no, mm. there's no reconciliation. And the other, the other thing I was going to potentially talk about, but I thought it was kind of a cheat. Cause it's like one of the last things that happens, but when father and son are finally reunited at the end and then the, the son's just immediately killed. And it's a big moment. Cause it's like, the death of a principal character but it's also like it's just this medium shot and an arrow just comes into frame or maybe he's shot it's a projectile of sorts and he just falls over dead and it's like <laughs> it's like three hours like they're oh there's finally they're finally coming back together maybe there's something no he's done uh, just dead Elia dies as well but for sure i'm not i'm not disputing that in terms of the play so right. go ahead i i believe it's a gun um, which kind of it it pairs well with the two battle scenes, right? Because it's such a, a an instrument of destruction that far outpaces anything else that's on the battlefield. Um, one uh, Jiro's forces trying to attack Saburo, who are who are hidden in the woods, and then just leveling them with guns, just destroy a, a, a force that's um, that outnumbers them by multitudes. But then also to bring it back to your moment, Dan, um, it's what Korean uses to um, kill uh, the oldest son, Taro is his name. Um, and it's 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 interesting because Kurgan is pragmatic in that he's willing to do to to assassinate to further his lord. Jiro, but he has this sense of impending dread the entire movie. He tells Jiro not to go into battle. He tells him not to to trust Lady Cade. And at the moment that he's has that he kills her, and he has he that quote saying, "This is all you know. We are undone." I think that helps to hit it that it hits a little bit more. Um, mm -hmm. He. He knows it's coming, and this is, you know, his confirmation that, you know, his sense of dread is truth. That 
everything is is lost at the moment. Speaking of that line, um, on the most recent release of uh, Ron on uh, Blu-ray and 4K, I noticed that the translation and the subtitles of that line are different, and I don't know if it's for the better. Um, instead of uh, the We Are Undone line, it just says, my lord, prepare to die. I, Kurogone, will follow you. Mm. Which, I don't. maybe that's more accurate to the Japanese, maybe. but uh, it's, it's less poetic. Um, well, and the We Are Undone thing, I think, speaks really nicely to your point about how uh, the end of King Lear, it's the sense of not only like has one person or one family been destroyed, but the entire kingdom. Like, it's such a blunt statement of it, but the fact that it comes from a more side character, yeah, it does hold a lot of weight. I mean, not all of us have access to that Blu-ray, so I can't talk about, you know, the subtitle change. The we Canadians didn't through. get the memo on that one. <laughs> Extremely jealous. I'm not going to hide it. <laughs> um, yeah, and I like that you point out, uh, Mike, that uh, Krugan, the whole movie, is like, don't do this. Like, he is in such he's trying to advise away from this course of action and yet he still has to reap all the consequences and he's also able to march head on into them in a way that his lord isn't he's much more uh lower character is much more hesitant to <clears throat> excuse me to uh face death even though there are consequences that he's helped rot in a way that krogan didn't but which is interesting because you could argue oh krogan's such a virtuous character he has such a strong sense of duty you'd also argue it's a character flaw where he's like so dutiful that he has to suffer consequences for things that really aren't his fault i mean obviously that ties into the whole samurai code the sort of loyalty to the end uh, facing death all of that um and we were mentioning guns before guns always uh, mean something when kurosawa uses them in period films whether it's kajimusha or yajimbo or seven samurai whenever they show up they're they're saying something about kind of a transition within the sort of uh the samurai ideal shall we say um um, but I bring it back to the the King Lear of it all. Um, it's interesting that this movie was actually not originally conceived to be a King Lear adaptation. Um, it was originally based on a real uh, Japanese daimyo named uh, Mori uh, Motonari, and that that daimyo famously had three sons who successfully carried his legacy forward. And the movie was kind of to suggest what those sons were a lot less dysfunctional or a lot less functional, more dysfunctional. And it was only like shortly before they went into pre-production that Shakespeare, uh, Kurosawa realized the King Lear parallels and kind of leaned into them a bit more. Um, and that I think is kind of why, you know, Lady Kaide isn't like a perfect Edmund analog, which I don't think matters too much. The, the details of Lear always give me a headache. I can't keep track of all the daughters and the people they're <laughs> in league with. That to me is not really what matters in Lear. What matters is this apocalyptic feeling. And I think that's what Kurosawa captures perfectly. Well, it's interesting too, uh, that you say that you point out that, yeah, like it wasn't initially planned as a Shakespeare adaptation because I think you could argue that maybe not in terms of like translating the material 
judging an adaptation on that, but just as like films based on Shakespeare, you could argue this is the best one. It, yeah, it's the best one that is a Shakespeare adaptation, yeah. Like, I don't know if it would be, like, I, I don't know even what criteria you would set up for, like, best in terms of capturing the source, but, like, I don't know. Like, the, the main competition that comes to mind for me with Ron is Throne of Blood. <laughs> and that feels kind of... I'm showing my biases at that point, but I, it's oh, interesting. He's the man. <laughs> I think you're forgetting that one, Dan. I actually haven't seen that, shockingly, given that it's, like, right at my age range that I would have, but... I don't yeah, think they even showed it to us in high school, which they talked about it. But... Twelfth night, right? I yeah, so, and we yeah. did read Twelfth Night in tenth grade, so I don't know why they didn't show it to us. I think that one's due for a new adaptation, the sort of gender role flipping, and that I think could uh, translate interestingly to modern discourse. Yeah, absolutely. It also hasn't. I guess like she's the man. Probably is the closest thing to a definitive film adaptation of it i can't think of too many other like big 12th night there there was there was one in the 90s those was there straightforward yeah hmm. interesting well, interesting way to like, close out a ron discussion <laughs> <laughs> yeah well let's move to our uh, next pick mike why don't you lead us in all right the next adaptation? uh to move um, from our earlier Richard III discussion to another 90s reinterpretation of Shakespeare, let's talk about Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet from 1996. Um, so, uh, at this point, Kenneth Branagh had already made his mark with two prior Shakespeare adaptations uh, with Henry V, and I believe the other one was. Um, to do about nothing. Not to do about nothing with Keanu Reeves in the bat, and is one of the worst acting performances he ever did. I remember that one now. Um, Better than Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> so um, at the time, this was billed, and I remember this um, when it came out, as the first unabridged version of, of Hamlet. Um, it clocks it over four hours long. And what's interesting with Shakespeare adaptations is I think there's a, a there's a of large hurdle, which is conveying motion to the audience, to modern audiences. And while transferring the scenery to the 19th century doesn't exactly help with this, um, you know, it looks nice. There's a few things that, you know, routes you could take uh, with getting through that dense dialogue. You can excise parts of the dialogue, uh, which Richard III does. Um, you can dumb it down, which plenty of other 90s adaptations do. Or in this case, you can rely on your actors to convey the emotion behind the words and still have all those words there. So the moment I have, it's one pivotal to the play. Um, it is also pivotal to Hamlet's tragic flaw of indecision. So Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, um, the character Hamlet has staged a play to determine his mother's culpability and his uncle's murder of his father, the King Hamlet, also named Hamlet. Um, he's just raged at his inability to take action the same way that his actors, the play actors um, can speak with their words. And he comes across uh, Derek Jacobi's King Claudius praying in the palace's private chapel for forgiveness for killing um, King Hamlet. So 
during the, the play and the movie, um, King Claudius admits that his act is unforgivable since he bears the fruits of the murder. Since he still has the crown, he still has the queen, his queen. He's unwilling to give either up. Um, he quiets down and he's silently praying. And that's when Hamlet sees him. And he has the opportunity to kill him. He thinks about it, but doesn't do it. And what's interesting about the way that this adaptation plays a scene is the way it's staged. Hamlet envisions killing him. He actually thinks about and sees himself driving a spike into Claudius's ear. He also has a mental image of King Claudius and his poisoning by um, poisoning of the former King Hamlet. And all this time, the camera is zooming in on his eyes and the dialogue that is within the text is internal dialogue. It's being thought out, um, which is just a clever way for, for the film to, to do, to ground that. It's, a, it's something if you saw this in the, in the play, Hamlet would be taking it aside and you'd have the main action of the play over here, but then he'd be speaking to the audience just to convey his thoughts. And in this case, it's internal. Um, so one, you have the internal dialogue, but then two, you also have just the way that his performance, he has to convey all of that thought, which is a long, long, long speech, just with the movement of his eyes. And I just think it's a really interesting way to, to, to stage that scene, to have someone someone's acting just stand on their eyes and really nothing else for so long the same that's my moment yeah i like that i like that it's something that can only really be done in film too right so it's it's the adaptation using its medium well because you can't have a voiceover well i guess you could if you played a tape of somebody over them standing on stage but really you wouldn't have a voiceover on a stage and you're not going to get close-ups of eyes on people on stages either right like you're those are things that aren't going to happen that are only going to happen in this medium so yeah good pick right and the, with tools like voiceover there's also always a decision about when to use it when not to use it there are plenty of scenes throughout the movie where they do just do the more standard soliloquy you know talking to the camera sometimes they'll find some other trick like doing the to be or not to be speech into a mirror for example but then they will use voiceover and scenes like this which diegetically that makes more sense he is like right next to the guy if he was talking that would give his position away um obviously you're supposed to with a soliloquy like that you're supposed to assume He's not really talking, but it, it would just be a funny, uh, strange image for audiences to take in if he's, you know, three feet away from Derek Jacoby and he's talking and Derek Jacoby doesn't notice him. It's it, it, that would just kind yeah. of clash. Um, and you'll notice Derek Jacoby isn't using a voiceover for his prayer. He is talking out loud in the scene. Yeah. So they're able to kind of just use both in the same scene. Um, make it work um and uh yeah uh so as far as the movie as a whole um this is probably my favorite of 
Branagh's three movies. Henry V is up there, but this one to me just has so is so maximalist that uh, it really works for me. I also think I, this is probably the one where his acting is probably my favorite of the three. Um, Branagh is a actor and director I have mixed feelings about often. Um, to me, he's he's very much uh, someone who is trying to do outreach to more conventional audiences to kind of take highbrow material and kind of make it work for the masses, which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. Hamlet to me is kind of the one where he's a lot less compromising. Um, he's doing the full four hours. He um, and he's not like editing it to make it more understandable. He's kind of trusting the audiences more and in its place, he's just making it just a total epic. Uh, he shot the movie on 70 millimeter, which it was the last movie to be shot on 70 millimeter for a very long time. Only recent movies like Hateful Eight and The Master have done it recently, but before between those two, it was pretty much a dead format. Um, the sets he's using are amazing. Uh, you notice he uses this like checkerboard um, pattern on the floor, which is kind of establishing this as kind of a game of chess between the characters, I think. Um, but he doesn't lose the drama. There's still a lot of kind of intimate moments like this that aren't overplayed. They're, they're still the intimate, you know, Hamlet drama that you've come to expect. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, Michael, I'm glad you brought up the sort of maximalist levels of almost spectacle to this production, because I think it actually ties in really nicely with uh, Mike's moment and Ian's point about it being like, needing the sort of form of film to be able to uh, have a moment structured this way, just in terms of like, which tends to separate, and you'd probably know this better than me, the the competent Shakespeare film adaptations from the great ones are the ones that really take advantage of the fact that it is a movie and you can do things that you can't do on the stage. And part of that is, you know, Mike's moment of like focusing on the eyes and the, the interplay of, of one character's uh, monologue versus another versus, and also, but also in the maximalist sense of like this lavish, amazing production value that like is technically somewhat possible on the stage, but not to the same extent. Um, so I think it speaks to both in the little and the big, what makes this film special. Although regrettably, I haven't actually seen it since my high school class in part because it's long in part, because I think we have a DVD version and I really feel like that one deserves the Blu-ray watch. Yeah. So Dan, I hadn't seen this movie since my high school class either. And I was inspired to rewatch it based off of your encouragement from our Henry V discussion on our the late 80s uh, episode. So nice. I'm glad I did. Um, I really hadn't remembered how much of a political thriller it comes across as. And, you know, the set, you know, plays a large role in that, the checkerboards and the large mirrors in the hall leading up to the throne. But, I mean, he does a lot of, you know, long takes that would be kind of static scenes on the stage um but you know he's able to to add some some movement to them um so there's always a propulsion behind each scene and mm -hmm. um to your point about you know maximalism or these intimate um scenes it helps that even in 
both in both scenes, he has the propulsion of the dialogue. Um, it's four hours long, but you know he's speaking real quick. It's it's you know ionic pentameter to what you'd expect it to be or what you've been taught it was, and you know it, it's constantly feeling like it's 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 moving towards you know utter disaster, which oh, it's a great feeling to have. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And a lot of that, like politics you're talking about, a lot of that's what tends to get cut out in Hamlet adaptations that aren't willing to be four hours long. Like um, it, a lot of people probably do not even know the character of Fortinbras uh, in from shorter versions of this, whereas here that dude really benefits from the extra time in this one. You And also the fact that you can go out to see his troops um, this is very much the the Fort and Bross ha- Hamlet, um, if ever there was one. <laughs> um, and you also get kind of a more nuanced version of Claudius, um, uh, and that that works well in this scene. Yeah, I have, which, sorry, go ahead, Mike. I, I'm sorry, I just I'm seizing on the Claudius thing. I've grown in appreciation for Derek Jacoby, um, not really having one prior to these recent rewatches. That guy's an amazing actor. And it might have something to do just with naturally the way his eyes look, but it's, it, it you know, it, it's, he's mesmerizing when you see him on mm-hmm. stage. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of Claudius here comes off in some ways, I don't know if sympathetic's totally the right word, but something about him feels more compelling than in other variations or how he can be portrayed. And I think a lot of that is just Jacoby himself just bringing that. I have a question for you guys though. So this is, you know, famously just the text translated to film. Brana gets an Oscar nomination for best adapted screenplay for this movie. <laughs> is that ridiculous? Yes or no? Maybe. <laughs> uh, so here's the thing. This is not actually just the text. Like just looking back at this particular scene, I noticed that um, they moved the placement of uh, Hamlet's uh, witching hour speech they move that to be a lot closer in in this one. Um, so that is a subtle change, for example. And I'm pretty sure the whole movie has a bunch of them, change, little changes like that. Um, and also, I mean, not everything in an adaptation is um, dialogue. I'm sure there's some stage direction there as well. Now, were I an Academy voter, would I have chosen this to be the thing I honor with that award? Probably not. Um, but not in a year that has Independence Day, at least. Right. What was that adapted from? <laughs> War of the Worlds. Oh, yeah, true enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, that's the thing. I'm like, I don't know. I'd have, I don't know what was would have been snubbed but uh, other right. than Independence Day. And I mean, this doesn't just happen with Shakespeare adaptations. Like, when they when the movie Fences um, came out a few years ago, so little had been changed from that that like August Wilson is just the credited screenwriter on it, and he got a nomination from Beyond the Grave. So <laughs> these things happen. Good for I think, him. I think that people just look at movies, they see a lot of talking, and they're like, "Oh, that's a screenplay." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, realistically, every time one of those. Uh, um, like Academy, how I voted things gets published anonymously. 
and it becomes clear how certain members don't put a lot of work into even watching the movies there's no way these cats are a lot of them are actually reading the screenplays too so yeah you're probably right like oh some good talking in this <laughs> must have been a good screenplay they need a, a public ballot initiative like that guy that publishes the uh major league baseball hall of fame ballots on twitter he just he accumulates all of the uh the baseball hall of fame voters with their public ballots there and you kind of um as the uh you know their columns listed out it's an interesting follow just to kind of see where everything's going but the guy tracks to see you know i think this person's getting in this person's getting in imagine naf rosters where someone you know uh, some media monitor is saying i think uh i don't know you know this guy's getting getting best actor or this guy's getting this this guy's getting director <laughs> i mean it take away some of the intrigue but it'll be interesting to follow and what I really want is just the statistics on like wh- what came in second place and everything and like who just got left out of being nominated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're never going to release that, but oh, I don't think so. Yeah, All I right. agree. That would be very curious to hear those details. Okay. Well, let's move to our next pick. So we went from probably his biggest play Hamlet to another one of the big ones, I would say. Uh, so Michael, why don't you, why don't you fill us in here? Okay. So this is going to be a difficult one to talk about, firstly, just because this is a disturbing scene in general. And secondly, because it comes from a filmmaker who is hard to talk about because he is disgraced, shall we say. Um, And that is Roman Polanski and his 1971 adaptation of Macbeth. I, I wouldn't normally bring up the controversy around Polanski first thing. I, I tend to be more separate the art from the artist, but I can't really do that with this scene because a lot of what gives this scene power is knowing what was going on with Polanski around this time, namely that he was reacting to the death of his wife, Sharon Tate at the hands of the Manson family. Um, so this is a scene um, it's act four scene two of Macbeth um we all know and, right hmm? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we all know what that is <laughs> right uh so it's a scene where a couple of Macbeth's uh, goons they're just called the murderers in the in the play they don't have names even the first murderer and second murderer uh break into um the Macduff uh Macduff family's house um and murder Macduff's uh wife and son um and they're shot here to be very they're not coldly efficient assassins they're they walk in they're a very menacing premise they actively taunt uh lady mcduff and they seem to almost be laughing when they stab her son and he walks forward saying mother i've been killed it's very disturbing. There's something very clockwork orange about the whole thing. And it's impossible not to view this in the context of Polanski processing the Manson murder of his wife. You've got a scene here where while the man of the house is away, two people walk in uh, at a home invasion uh, at the orders of a psychopathic Machiavellian brutally stabbing innocent people. Um, I don't think I'm making that much of a stretch by 
suggesting he might have been processing something here. Um, and what's interesting about all of this is that it kind of repositions the play to be something that's less of a tragedy about the fall of Macbeth and more being about his victims in a way, at least a little bit in this scene, at least. Um, and also it, you kind of reinterpret uh, the ending when uh, Macduff uh, beheads in most in a particularly bloody fashion, uh, Macbeth. You can kind of see that as almost kind of a revenge parallel. It's almost like Polanski's own fantasy of taking revenge on Charles Manson, if my comparison here isn't completely ridiculous in a stretch. Um, but I, I do think there's something there. I think he is processing something very personal using this uh, early modern text um, that everyone is familiar with, but which has these uh, pretty striking parallels to what this guy was going through at the time. Um, and I, th I think that really gives a certain charge to the whole film. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're definitely right on the money when you talk about, you know, the parallels in Polanski's life. I mean, um, the fact that, like, he'd wanted to make an adaptation of Macbeth before, but he doesn't actually start working on it until after doesn't feel like coincidence. Um, it's funny, though, when I saw that this was your moment, I, I thought you were doing when Macduff finds out and uh, he kind of just breaks down in um, in this field. And I was thinking watching that, like the way that that scene's shot. And I can't remember if this is also reflected in this scene, but thinking about how the tendency to shoot Shakespeare plays in a very like prestige filmmaking, very mannered and like uh, structured. I was thinking, well, the fact that this comes out like three years after the Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet, which is very, pretty and nice and prestige Hollywood. And this film, like the scene where Macduff is told what's happened to his family, it's like shaky cam in this like shitty field. And he, when he just sinks, the camera just kind of sinks with him. Like it's so, it's, it almost feels, and this is like a cliche to say whenever there's handheld camera, but it almost feels like documentary just as far as like, you're not being presented like a, a nice painterly or pretty depiction of history. You're sort of inserted into the moment in a much more, raw and ugly way which i think fits with this scene and also just generally how kind of dreary and miserable this film is even by the standards of Macbeth adaptations yeah i mean like the very first scene of this movie is a guy getting his face pulverized by like a chain mace um <laughs> nonchalantly as like the ocean is in the background um i don't know i do find Macbeth is one of the more outdoors of Shakespeare's plays in general. A lot of people like to use this sort of the foresty kind of Scotland to really kind of set a mood. And uh, some of them, a lot of them go even further. Um, if you look at like the Wells version or if the trailers are any indication, the upcoming Joel Cohen version, they're very almost kind of noir inflected. Whereas this one is very almost kind of matter of fact in sort of the landscape. Yeah. And it's also just like, it's just miserable. Like it's such an ugly movie. And then like, it's beautiful. Like it's amazing in it's construction, but I don't know. It, it, it's definitely stands out compared to something like the Wells version or the throne of blood, which is a lot more stylized. And while it's still 
it doesn't portray the uh the sort of darkness at the core of the story this one really like gets to the heart of the violence in a way that's i don't want to say better or worse but different than most of its uh contemporaries yeah it's certainly one of the bloodier shakespeare movies you're going to find Mm -hmm. i'm amazed that they did actually show us this one in school i think they tried to fast forward through a couple parts but yeah yeah, it's it stands out compared to compared to romeo and juliet probably just fast forward through the witches scene i'm guessing when they're doing it that was the main one i remember or the out damn spots we can watch horrible bloody violence but old lady boobs no way we're getting out of this one thanks high school (laughs) (laughs) oh it's interesting that um that polanski chose this time to to um to adapt this movie and within the movie prior to the murder of Macduff family, he leaves in the line where Lady Macduff, Macduff calls Macduff a coward for fleeing to England. And, you know, it's another level of what he's been processing at the time um, and, and, and adapting the movie at this time. I mean, right there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like this is kind of um, Polanski's sort of visceral response to the the murder, whereas his later movie Tess, I think, is his more kind of gentle kind of tribute to his uh, slain wife. Um, which that's two different adaptations he used to really go at it. So it's, it's kind of interesting how he uses these kind of existing texts to kind of do kind of an end route around the topic he's looking at in order to you know there's plausible deniability there he can just say I mean, it's, it's what's in the Shakespeare's text that's what I'm doing but it, it doesn't take a genius to see that he's kind of trying to do something a bit more personal which is interesting too because those films in addition to the subject matter being entirely different like the tones and styles too are also like so far removed from each other um it's been a while since I've seen this one, so I'm not sure where I would put it in the Polanski ranking. Where do you guys think it would fall for you? It's hard to say. That movie, that guy, his movies are a bit, not, they're not quite apples and oranges. There's certainly a through line to them, but they're not as easy to kind of just compare directly as some filmmakers. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And the Shakespeare adaptation is always going to be kind of a little bit of an outlier within a filmmaker's body of work. It's just, it's kind of operating on a different level. You're a bit more attached to a text. Um, so there's a little less direct control over what you're showing. Um, so I don't know. That's kind of the thing with me in the Shakespeare adaptations. I, lo- I love Shakespeare adaptations. I watch a lot of them. But there is sort of a plateau as to just how much I'm going to praise them. They really kind of have to kind of go above and beyond the text and do something really interesting with the adaptation for me to really kind of view them as kind of a next level film, like a five star, four, four and a half star kind of experience. And I bring up, what about She's the Man? (laughs) (laughs) Valid question. Have you seen She's the Man, Michael? No. Damn it. 
Has anyone on this podcast seen She's the Man? Including Ian. No. One, you know what, Ian? You're gonna watch it. Like this is a great movie. I can't believe I made fun of it on the podcast so much. We're dedicating an entire episode to it. I mean, sure, whatever. (laughs) I'll talk about anything. I don't care. Um, Interesting, because I I remember the film being like very good, and I kind of really, especially after talking about it now, I really want to revisit it. But I don't know where it would fall. I mean, I don't think it's breaking into the sort of top three. But it's no Chinatown. <laughs> no, that's no. That's never getting beat. It's no Rosemary's Baby. I don't think I'd put it over the pianist. Um, I definitely put it over the ninth gate. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> no, nah, I'm kidding. It, it's definitely better than that. I was going to say, are you um, the ninth gate? I, w- I wouldn't put it over Repulsion, though. So there's four, at least yeah, four that I'd put over it. That's true. At the risk of giving you all fodder for our other endeavors, I've only this is the only the third movie of his I've seen or or so I think. Really, what are the other I've two? Rosemary's Baby and Pulsion. Okay. Oh, so you haven't um, seen the big one? No, I haven't seen Chinatown. No. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So. Film club. Take I know exactly what I'm what I'm signing myself up to. So. <laughs> yeah. Sweet, good pick. All right, yeah. God damn, I really want to rewatch this now. <clears throat> All right, okay. I guess uh, is me now, hey? I believe so. Okay, so I'm gonna say my pick, but I think <laughs> me and Dan realized until not until Michael pointed out that our picks are very similar, even <laughs> from different the movies. same scene. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm gonna rather talk like about- Romeo and Juliet ourselves. <laughs> So I'm going to talk about Romeo and Juliet or Romeo plus Juliet or whatever you want to say uh, from 1996, which is Baz Luhrmann's crazy frenetic adaptation. And the scene I'm going to talk about is basically when Romeo and Juliet meet each other for the first time and see each other through the fish tank. So um I, as I was thinking about this, because it's it's a moment that stands out to me. It's a it's a pretty big moment, obviously, because it's when the two leads first meet each other, and it's it takes place at this big party at the Capulet Mansion. But it's interesting because they see each other in this kind of moment of calm in the party, so because the party's really wild and crazy for a while, and then it slows down with the the slow song comes on. And the what's his name Leonardo DiCaprio that guy as a Romeo he, growing pains kid yes <laughs> he takes a bit of a break he splashes water in his face and then he goes and he checks out these fish in the fish tank and of course through the fish tank on the other side he sees Claire Danes's Juliet and you can you can tell the energy between them right away but I was kind of thinking about. Um, why does why does Baz Luhrmann have them meet in this particular manner in this in this fashion instead of just seeing each other from across the room or whatever they would normally do and I thought of a couple metaphors I think might work so I'm talking about metaphors and Shakespeare I feel like we're in a high school English class right now <laughs> but we're just as qualified to teach it as the people who taught me Shakespeare in high school I, so Hey, I have actually taught Shakespeare, so there you go. Class is in session. I'm a math teacher normally, but somehow I have had experience in that. But so we, the one thing that I thought about was, 
I think even with even with uh, Shakespeare himself in his play, there's a sense of a barrier between these characters, right? And so there's always that the separation. And of course, the separation is the fact that they're from two dueling families. And so they need to be kept apart as much as possible. Um, I think the, of course, in the play, the balcony is a huge uh, symbol of this, right? The fact that they have to speak through the balcony. Um, but here, I think this is just an interesting little touch that shows the, the barrier between these two characters and them coming together. And so they can see each other, but they're on opposite sides. And so I think it's a nice metaphor for that. And then I think on a deeper level, because Romeo and Juliet, of course, is seen as a romance, right? It's a romantic story and romantic films when it's adapted. But it's not because it's just two teenagers that think they're in love and then everything ends up falling to, you know, falling apart. And so it, it's more about the infatuation, right, rather than actual romantic love. And I also think this is a good metaphor for that, because when they see each other, they're seeing each other through this distortion of the water and and the fish tank itself and the glass right and you can see that perspective too like everything's just a little bit off when you see it from his angle and then when you see it on her side too and so their faces are a little bit distorted and so i think it's a there's a second level of metaphor there maybe the maybe i'm just reading into that maybe Baz Luhrmann had no um no concept of that but i think he did i think i think that there's a there's a reason on- he had the meet in that moment Based on Baz Luhrmann's filmography, I think it's equally plausible that either A, that was exactly what he intended, or B, he just thought it looked cool. Either of those readings, I think, are equally likely. I I, I think it was intended. I think there's definitely, he makes a very clear point of showing how his face looks bigger on her side and her face looks bigger on his side. That's not a coincidence. He he definitely is trying to show something about how the sort of uh, love the starstruck love between them love at first sight shall we say is kind of uh distorting the way they're seeing each other or you know maybe not even distorting maybe it's you know a legitimate way to be seeing each other in that scene yeah oh i mean this is a movie i i do not enjoy but the moment um, the biggest fan either <laughs> The moment works well because it's probably the first moment where it slows down, the film slows down from its excesses. Absolutely. Yeah. Now the first twenty to thirty minutes are, um, you know, the worst excesses of the excesses of the nineties. Um, they're extreme. Uh, <laughs> starting MTV. with TV. Yeah, starting yeah. with capital X, no E. Um, you know, I spent a good chunk waiting for a character to do a kickflip, um, but <laughs> looking at the the. The, the movie itself, um, you know, Claire Danes is one of the best performances of the movie. Um, and, you know, that's not saying much, but I, I, I do think that there's, there are a few that are there that shine through the frenetic pacing and the direction of the movie. Um, Harold Perrineau as um, Mercutio being another. Um, but Claire Danes is very relatable and you know, it, it's interesting how much of that perspective you see from her early on. It seems to be, you know, the kind of the first, you know, window into how she's feeling that you see in the movie, where 
Whereas you had that big fight start and you do have um, Leonardo DiCaprio thinking and daydreaming. Um, but to, to have things cut to her perspective, I think really works very well as a contrast to that opening of, the, of that movie. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. One, of, uh, one of the touches I really love about this scene is right as uh, Juliet is being pulled away, you see um, Claire Danes just do one last kind of look at him. I, that look, I just love that. It's like the smallest little action in the scene, but you, it's it's just completely charming. You can totally get why you see in her face the sort of uh, longing to stay where she is. And also from Romeo's perspective, it's just, it's, it's adorable. You, it should, you, you can see why he's falling in love with her. Um, that having been said, the thing that kills this movie for me, it's not the excesses. I think there's, there's fun to be had with that. It's, it's a take. It's, 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 it's interesting to look at at least once. What kills it for me is just the acting. I, th- I think some of the act performances here are just, just not good. I don't think Leonardo DiCaprio, like he's a good actor. He's, we've seen good performances from him, both even at the time. But I don't, he, I don't think he's good with Shakespeare dialogue at all. I, th- I think the characters are just shouting at each other through most of the movie. Um, some of the adults in the movie are better, but a lot of the younger actors, I just, I don't think they're, they, they don't, they don't, they're not getting the poetry. Amy Kennedy emotes like a live action anime character. It's <laughs> a lot of that. I like it. Yeah, that was my memory. I, I, Pete Postlewitz in this movie, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I distinctly remember watching because there's scenes between him and DiCaprio and it's like, man, one of these dudes really knows how to deliver this dialogue and it ain't Leo. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's funny, like I, I haven't, this is one I want to rewatch because Lerman in general, I feel like I owe a second shot because whatever, whether his excesses appeal to me or not, as Michael points out, it is a take and it goes back to like making an adaptation of Shakespeare that you could only do in, in on film makes me think I probably should give this one another chance. But the first time I watched it and so far, the only time was either the same day or the day after I watched Ron for the first time and going oh. from <laughs> patient disciplined, you know, just like these perfect compositions that just hold for so long to like, the next day just being like, Oh God, no, please stop cutting. My brain hurts. Gas station too much. blowing up. <laughs> I was like, what have I done? I, I distinctly remember that emotion. So I, I want to give this one another shot. But um, yeah, this moment does actually stand out. And this specifically the use of the water to distort the appearances um, is an interesting detail because it emphasizes the ways in which they're potentially not really perceiving each other in a way that's not necessarily romantic so much as it is an infatuation built on an inaccurate understanding of or or sense of who the other person is because that kind of is the opposite to my moment which is from West Side Story and how it portrays the moment of in this case Tony and Maria seeing each other for the first time where essentially everything else on the sides of the frame other than the characters goes out of focus except for the two of them looking at each other and it's interesting that this to me feels much more sincerely romantic than your moment and it's interesting because my own take on Romeo and Juliet, I tend to hate 
how when, when people do try to present it more as like a romantic play, which is how it was presented to us in high school. I distinctly remember my teacher saying, if you don't believe in love at first sight, you're not going to like this play because it's about falling in love from the first. And it's like, no, it's not. That's not what this is. But I think you could argue this scene is a more sincere depiction of falling in love at, in a sort of romantic heightened sense of at first sight. And the main reason I wanted to talk about it was because one, I just think it looks cool. Not unlike my moment from Ron, it's just a neat visual. And I think a lot of what gives West Side Story its power is just all of this, these really creative cinematic flourishes. Uh, I think it's a brilliant way to demonstrate your sort of focus, like in a room full of people zeroing in on one person and them zeroing in on you. Um, an equal visual or a visual of that caliber we would not see again until It's Always Sunny when Charlie and uh, Max see each other at the restaurant. Um, but the other reason is because when I think about this movie, so much of uh, its best sort of elements are these amazing widescreen compositions that are just full of um, dancers performing this amazing choreography and the ensemble of people. Um, and I just love the way that this moment cuts through that and focuses on just two individuals connecting. And you have this amazing choreographed dance number that then can fade away for a bit to focus on this really intimate moment while still maintaining, because even though it's out of focus, you can still see you know, what's going on around them, the sort of breadth and scope of the uh, musical. So yeah, I think it's an amazing uh, way to tell the story and also capture the sort of style and aesthetic of this adaptation. Yeah, and the thing about this whole scene, whenever anyone is ad adapting it in any movie, is that if you look at it on the page, um, Shakespeare is not exactly going into detail about sort of that first glance that the two characters have if you read it you basically it's like Juliet walks in with her father then it cuts to Romeo asking a servant hey what's the name of that girl then he goes on a big long speech about how beautiful she is and then eventually they interact but it's not like there's some lengthy description about uh how they see each other and they stop breathless that is in many ways up to the actors, up to the people putting on the production or the people making the movie to really decide how much to emphasize that and what way to emphasize it. Um, so we're looking at two different ways that they can kind of stop and have this kind of wordless moment because like the play is, it's a play. It's using the language of the written word to convey this. Whereas um, the, Romeo plus Juliet scene we were just talking about that uses a very cinematic kind of staging um, set decoration to really kind of emphasize it. Whereas West Side Story, that's using the language of the musical. It um, goes into almost kind of like a dream ballet as the two approach each other. Um, and um, I, I think I think when they originally staged West Side Story as a musical, they just used spotlights in this scene to kind of drown out the light sense. from everyone else and then focus on the two people as they spot each other um so here they instead use this kind of blurring um technique to kind of eliminate the other people and focus in on the two principles mm -hmm. yeah and then once they actually start dancing they do they don't really i don't remember if they use spotlights necessarily but there is a sort of there's other dancers in the frame it's not it's sort of 
sort of an abstraction of the space. So it's not the full ensemble, but there are other uh, couplings around them, but they're sort of cast in darkness, um, which again speaks to that sort of dream uh, space that musicals sort of inhabit for their numbers that again, does an amazing job of keeping you with the sort of intimacy of these two characters, but also still gives you the ensemble choreography. Um, and again, it looks cool. <laughs> and so. you're, you're also moving genres of, of, of music as well, you know, from, I mean, I'm not sure if you call that jazz or salsa from that big giant dance everyone in the, in the gym is doing to, you know, that ballet technique that Michael was, was referring to. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, aside from the choreography that, that, that changes where the background dancers are, are moving around, aside from the blurring, I have no idea how they do that kaleidoscope effect where you have the falling colors around them. And it seems too early in film history for that to be happening. I'm not a film scholar, I'm a film fan, but, you know, it looks neat. Um, so am I the only one on the call here who has seen the uh, remake that's currently out in theaters from Steven Spielberg? Yeah, yes, I think so. Okay. Uh, so I figured I'd just bring up how the scene is dealt with in that version. Um, it's a lot more conventional. It's um, kind of a slow motion effect. You can, you can see it in the trailer a bit. Uh, it's very focused on kind of the framing of the two people. Um, and then once they've spied each other, they kind of go behind the bleachers to talk. Um, the one thing I wanted to note about that is uh, Janusz Kaminski just shoots the hell out of the scene. It's just beautiful. Um, and the thing he does is there's a lot more like lens flare in this scene than there is in the rest of the movie, which I think is a little bit like that kind of distortion effect we were talking about with Romeo plus Juliet, kind of capturing the sort of young infatuation going on here, how they're kind of not seeing things clearly they're they're uh, just so uh, taken with each other that they're not thinking about the outside world um, and it's kind of a similar effect it's it's subtle it's not like this is saying you're that's like a huge effect in the scene but that's kind of how they handle it there yeah i've heard Kaminsky's, well, the other Kaminsky's a little bit more ambitious than he has been in a while is what i've heard about this movie but i don't know if you'd agree uh, with that or not depends what you're considering ambition i mean the post is ambitious in its own way it's just not a huge production um ready player one is a huge production but it's not particularly looks um, like garbage yeah 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 there's an ambition there it might not be a fulfilled ambition but <laughs> um <laughs> failed ambitions are ambitions too <laughs> yeah um, um it's funny too, though, because Michael, I think you and I kind of agree on on one aspect of this film, which is that the actual romance between Tony and Maria is kind of the least interesting part of the movie. Um, and in some ways, the actual their actual coupling doesn't live up to this initial promise. Uh, although the final scene, I think, is extraordinary, but the actual like falling in love and romance, it's just kind of like okay, let's get back to the gangs. <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting because I think with the remake, that's actually it's the opposite. I think the Tony and Maria stuff actually works really well in that version, but when you get to kind of the more of the like Broadway numbers, I think those are less well done. Um, I don't think I think that's kind of where Spielberg isn't quite able to live up to sort of the iconic status of the original film as much. He tries to change things up; they're kind of interesting, but it's it's not it's not the same. 
but I think uh, Ansel Elgord and uh, Maria Zegler, I believe is her name, I think they're an improvement over the stars of the original film in some ways. Um, you know, Natalie Wood being a white girl in black, brown face, not great, but I don't, I don't, it's not just that. I just think her performance has some issues as well. And I don't even remember the guy, the name of the guy who played Tony in the original, which maybe tells you something. Whereas I think he's Ben Horn in Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah. And I, <laughs> I don't remember his name though. So I don't remember uh, his name either. Uh, so, but I, so I think that it's pretty much everything that I d- don't think works as well in the original is better in the remake. And everything that is not so great in the remake is better in the original. It's, it's really weird how they kind of, it works like that. Hmm. I can't think of too many other off the top of my head situations like that, where like they kind of complement each other, the original and the remake um, where one's failings are sort of made up for by the other and vice versa. I'm sure there are probably others, but cool. Cool. Well, I think those, I think our two uh, moments complement each other. Well, I think they contrast a little bit. And, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. They're, they're both, uh, both literally in terms of the formal ways they achieve that initial meeting, they're different. And in terms of, I think what they're saying thematically, yeah, uh, which is neat. Yeah. I will defend uh, Romeo and Juliet though. Although I might be looking at it through my own uh, fish tank. Cause this was, <laughs> that was actually the first movie. I, my first date was going to that movie. So, wow. yeah. Yeah. that's pretty good Easy i'm pretty sure my first bit. date was like a movie called just my luck just yeah with Lindsay lohan and chris pine from like 2005 <laughs> so you've got me beat there yeah and, but you cherish oh, it yeah. forever right <laughs> yes naturally watch it every valentine's day yeah and now i feel bad for all the bad things i said about this movie <laughs> Don't, it's fun. yeah mike was in that theater back in 96 <laughs> that movie sucks <laughs> well that was you it's not a terrible movie. There, it's it's memorable. I'll give it you is that. memorable. Yes, it's it's very ambitious. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap things up. Mike, you got one more pick for us. Okay. Um, so uh, I have uh, Chimes at Midnight. Orson Welles's um, consolidation of the Henry. Um, the fifth tetralogy into one film centered around John Falstaff um, from 1960s. I forget what the the, the year is. Um, Between 65 and 67. Depends where you live. Tumultuous release schedule. Okay. Um, it was 65 in Spain, I think. So I had, I don't have the Criterion channel generally. I had a 30-day trial, decided to watch this. Uh, did not know the movie had sound issues and the Criterion Channel version I watched had no subtitles. So you'll have to bear with me because this is going to be a gist of a moment rather than the actual text of the moment. Um, so my moment is early in the film and um, Henry, um, the future Henry V, here called Hal, uh, Falstaff and others are plotting to steal some money from traveling pilgrims. Um, but secretly Hal and his friend plot to steal the money from Falsaf after they steal the money from the pilgrims when they return to their base of operations um, which is a brothel um, 
fouls off recounts to the audience, which is just the poor denizens of you know maybe fifty to hundred people there, um, of being robbed by um, two of a bunch of men and stabbed eight times, nearly stabbed eight times to to take a sack of money. And what's funny about the scene is it keeps on going back and forth, and how. Sorry, Falstaff keeps on, or Orson Welles' Falstaff keeps on changing his story after repeated questioning. So it's two, then it's four, then it's five, then it's seven. And all the while, Hal and his friend are kind of whispering in the background saying, oh, it's two more now. Um, but when you see this play out, it, it, it plays the big fish story. And, um, you know, Hal purposely gets him worked up. And then, you know, kind of sets Falstaff down to, to tell him the truth and dumps out the, the, the sack of coins on the table. And Orson Welles' only response is to say how proud he is of them. But at times during this whole interplay, you have this shot from the back of Falstaff um, kind of over his shoulder to talk to Hal and his, and his, uh, his friend um, about, you know, how many men there actually were. And visually, he's taking up nearly the entire screen. Um, you know, the way that um, Orson Welles shoots himself Falsaf is larger than life. He's he's huge, um, and even in the promotional materials, you'll see he's just this giant man. And it's interesting to to see what this represents in terms of what Orson Welles is really focused on within the movie. Um, you know, he's taking three or four movie, three or four plays that are all based around other characters and focusing them on this side character who's largely comic relief, but making him a tragic figure in the end. And it's a nice contrast to the third act of the film, we get to the battle of Shrewsbury um, and um, the eventual rejection of Falsoff by Henry V after he takes the throne. Visually in those, those moments, um, Falsoff either looks comical in ill-fitting armor that he's trying to hide from the battlefield from, um, which is a very funny scene. Or he looks very small in comparison to Henry V um, on um, the steps to the throne. I'm not sure if there's a technical word for it. Um, so I don't know, it's, I guess that's my moment. Um, I'm hoping we can kind of go back and forth on this one. Yeah, it's interesting how your your two picks. One is the the four hour unedited play, and the other one is the one where he was able to take two and a half plays and cut it down to an eat to a tight one twenty minutes. <laughs> um, which, yeah, the 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 sort of log line you could use for this is that he took the comic relief parts from a history play and turned it into a tragedy. Yeah, I, I wouldn't argue with that. Well, um, it's funny. This is just gonna make me look dumb, but you have in your in the show notes, you know, your moment, and you have Big Fish 
in brackets and I'm scanning through the scene last night. I'm like, when the hell is he going to talk about the fish? I don't, what is this? And I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. It's an expression. Okay. Yeah. Um, this scene, I, I think this scene also gets to the core of the appeal of the film in some ways, which is, I mean, it has like this amazing battle sequence, which is all the more impressive considering how low budget the film is. And you can tell even in the battle that it's low budget, but it's still like an incredible and rousing scene. But the real heart of the movie is like hanging out in the tavern with Falstaff and just kind of having fun with Wells and his character and, and enjoying the, um, the friendship between, and at times sort of sparring friendship between Hal and Falstaff. And I think that this scene is such a good indicator of that and the relationship and the way that they can kind of goad and tease each other, but still have this affection that by the end of the film is gone. And all of a sudden it gets uh, quite tragic in a lot of ways, but those early, like when I think about this film, I think about Wells in a tavern imbibing in alcohol and having a good time. And that's, I think, captured here. So well, were they, did they rob him just for a gaff or what? Like, oh no, they're, they're like, Falstaff's a bad person. Like, he legitimately is a bad person. And so are many of the people that are, are well, not all of them, but many of the people that are in the brothel. Um, they're robbing just for the fun of it. They're, it's not to really to, to, to get more money to live by. I mean, maybe in a the text they are. But... Oh, but is that why they robbed him? Just as kind of like a... It's a, it's oh, a prank, joke. basically. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, it's it really just a is, prank, yeah. bro. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this was the original prank channel. Um, yeah, I like the scene quite a bit. It's also one of the most... It's funny you mentioned Criterion not having the subtitles on the streaming service, because I did when I was watching last night put on the subtitles, because the dialogue is so fast that... And in general, and like, I don't know, don't make fun of me for this guys. But I do find sometimes I kind of struggle with uh, Shakespearean dialogue because I'm not used to it. And if it's read quickly, I do miss a lot. So, and this speech in particular, this the sort of banter between uh, Hal and Falstaff and the other guy, sorry, other guy, um, <laughs> has this sort of like, it has such an energy to it. And it's really exciting to watch, but it's also, yeah, it's very easy to miss a lot of details if you're not uh, sort of really paying attention to every word. Right, and this movie did infamously have some issues with audio sync um, when it was first distributed. A lot of that is actually pretty heavily fixed in the most recent restoration. Um, they've used some digital technology to fix that. Um, it's kind of the same technology that was used to finally put that like Aretha Franklin concert movie from a couple of years back to, back together. Um, and that is that was actually part of. Um, why the film had kind of a not so great reputation when it first came out that and the fact that like for years it was just impossible to find there was some like rights issues because he funded it from outside of like the studio system so there's a lot of confusion over who had the rights to it for the longest time so it, for a while it almost it wasn't a lost movie but it felt like a lost movie to the average consumer who was a wells fan um but it's, it's really made a comeback recently. Um, getting back to the scene, like the importance of this is that like at the end of the movie and the end of Henry the Fourth part two, um, when Hal finally does um, move away from Falstaff, 
I mean, he's not really doing that because he doesn't like Falstaff anymore. He's do, it's a sacrifice. He realizes that he has become the king. He needs to set these childish things aside. And the king being a friend with the scoundrel is that's not what a king should be doing. He needs to grow up. Um, so you, you really, if, with scenes like this, you need to really kind of establish for him why he liked hanging out with this guy in the first place and why he was appealing and why banishing him from his presence is um, it's a sacrifice for him. And, you know, Orson Welles is on record saying he thinks that Falsoth is Shakespeare's greatest creation. And I, I, it's, it's kind of funny, you know, he has two movies that, you know, I know of this and Citizen Kane where there's, this desire to return to childish wonderment. If you're reading into how he portrays Falstaff on in this in this movie, um, you know he seems to be saying that you know um, that lifestyle that Falstaff has has some merits. That maybe it's it's good to have some some mirth and some you know um, some not taking yourself seriously too, um, which. <sighs> You know, he does view that ending, that ending moment of of Henry V turning his back on him as a tragedy, mm-hmm. which is kind of. Uh, which I don't know. think Shakespeare sees it that way. I think no, Shakespeare sees it as no. uh, Henry finally, you know, getting his Growing shit up. together. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, though, because I find that I agree with that. But I also think that Wells, despite the fact that he's described the film as like a sort of betrayal of friendship you still in that final moment between Henry V and Falstaff, you get, you certainly get why Henry has made this choice and you get the sense that Falstaff understands why. And in a weird way, he's proud of him, even though it hurts. And there's a certain, it's hard not to, in some ways it's easy to maybe apply that to Wells, the man and thinking about some of his later relationships with people, notably someone like Peter Bogdanovich, where you could argue have a similar Falstaff and Henry V dynamic and they have a falling, they have a falling out and then they come back together briefly later in life, although not to the same degree uh, as before. And it's, and this is after uh, Chimes of Midnight, but it's, I still find it's easy to see some parallels there and wonder if, you know, Wells saw, I don't know, a bit of sort of empathy for people maybe who he had falling out with. And uh, as much as it hurt, he kind of understood. Yeah, I've also heard it theorized that Wells may have seen a great deal of his father in Falstaff because his father was apparently something of a drunken gadfly. So uh, it's not hard to see the reading there mm. with uh Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, this the other thing I like about your moment, too, is to me, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, not only does it get to the core of the appeal of Chimes at Midnight, but I would argue it gets to the core of why Chimes at Midnight is the best of Wells's three Shakespeare movies, which might spark some debate. But I like his Macbeth. Um, I like his Othello as well, although it's been a bit longer since I've seen that one. But in some ways... I find the budgetary limitations and the lack of production value hurt those films more, especially Othello in a way that it's less prominent here in part, because while there is the sort of uh, 
the the aspects of the historical plays is still there it's at the periphery and it comes up at times and again in the battle scene i think it's marvelous but that's not really why we're here for chimes at midnight and i think that the sort of way that that content is reduced and sort of done in more abstract ways with just the those like sparse empty halls in the castle capture that aspect of the story well enough but really the focus is on that smaller scale uh hanging out in the tavern stuff which plays to wells's financing at this stage of his career so i think that's part of what makes chimes moments like this uh wells's best shakespeare film yeah i don't think it's even close um like uh othello macbeth they're both solid adaptations but they're not doing anything nearly as novel as um piecing together these the tetralogy into a single narrative and i also i don't think there's anything in it in either of those movies as exciting as the battle scene, nor do I think Wells is doing anywhere near as good of a performance uh, in the center of those movies as he is here. I think this is actually, this might well be the movie where I think Wells is giving the best performance, like as an actor in any of his own movies. Dan Um, might argue with that because he, I don't know if you guys know this, but he's actually claimed that all Orson Welles' performances are equally great. So he equates this to Transformers. Did I say that? I'm pretty sure. Something along those lines. I mean, I am a defender might be of twisting your words a little in bit, Transformers but. the movie. He's the best part of it by far. You underestimate me, Galvatron. It's chills down my spine. Um, I mean, I might go Kane, which is the boring choice. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it, this and Kane are his best two performances. And then Touch of Evil is kind of right beneath for me. Yeah, yeah, that one's close. Yeah, it's of his Shakespeare films too. It's easily, it feels like also a role that, and obviously many people have played Falstaff, but it also feels uniquely suited to Wells um, in a way that like Macbeth or certainly not Othello um, yeah, felt that one's, suited to. Yeah. That one's going to take some, uh, I don't think the film world has quite come to the point where they're going to reckon with. Um, the implications of the role he picked in that movie that movie yeah but uh i mean i would argue it's better than olivier doing othello in terms of the presentation but functionally it's equally as awful so um well i can absolutely just with mike describing the scene and describing the you know the big fish aspect i can absolutely see that fitting orson wells's demeanor and energy really really well so I haven't seen this, but I can, I can see him in that role. I can see, absolutely see him doing that. Doing that. It's a fun watch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's my third favorite Orson Welles directed film, I think. Next to Touch of Evil and, of course, Kane. And then at the top is Transformers, which he secretly directed. But <laughs> <laughs> has anyone here seen that movie but me? No. I haven't seen it in a long time. <sighs> guys it's so good and by good i mean one of the worst films but the wells parts are fun and leonard nimoy is also like the secondary villain so it kind of has a cool cast scatman crothers is in it i did have dare to be i did have dare to be stupid as on one of my uh spotify wrapped for 2021 somehow (laughs) nice that's truly one of the most baffling scenes in the film is there's a chasing that's just set to weird owls dare to be stupid and it's like who made this choice all films should have that. 
It Maybe. did at least give us the touch, which would then be reclaimed by Paul Thomas Anderson and Boogie Nights. That's true. So it, it can't be. There is some worth to it. Actually, that soundtrack, I want to say there's a Canadian sort of hair metal band. Um, I think it's Kickaxe that they have. They performed under the name Spectre General because it's like a sci-fi movie, I guess. But uh, I kind of like some of the songs. Other, I mean, The Touch, of course, which, you know, was immortalized by PTA and Mark Wahlberg. But the rest of the soundtrack is actually kind of okay in like a cheesy 80s way. I will defend this film to a very minimal degree. Yeah, we're, we're catching that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, awesome. I think included we... a talk about The Bard with a talk about Transformers, the movie. Ian brought That's it up first, goes. not me. That's Let the record goes. show. <laughs> I was talking about Citizen Kane and Touch of Evil, and Ian's like, well, Transformers, your favorite. <laughs> so he's the villain. Yeah, you're welcome, Bill. I think we, uh, <laughs> I think we touched on your plays pretty well <laughs> and the film adaptations. Um, yeah, I don't, we're running pretty late here. So this might, this might beat our James Bond episode for length. We'll see how, how the editing turns out. But you know, Brianna would approve. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> We're doing We're just, it in uh, the spirit. Of... That's right. Maybe the Cohen's Macbeth and West Side Story will, you know, spawn a new Shakespeare uh, Renaissance. Yeah, we'll see. I'm very excited for the Macbeth. It, it looks Me very too. interesting. Okay. Well, awesome cast. Oh, Michael so and Mike, uh, thank you guys for coming on. Yeah, I think if it was just me and Dan talking about Shakespeare, we'd be doing a lot of. Uh, thumb twirling <laughs> yeah we'd fake it through yeah that's true we faked our way through james bond i've never even seen one of those movies <laughs> <laughs> yeah but thanks thank for coming on me. you guys yeah thank you for having us yeah. and uh thank michael you. will direct them to your blog the movie vampire uh, uh yes uh my blog uh the movie vampire.wordpress.com your source for uh quickly put together reviews with several spelling errors um just put up posted my uh review for house of gucci recently um and by the end of the week i think i'll have my review of uh benedetta up there uh so going uh going at a nice clip recently um can also see my reviews on my letterbox account uh the movie vampire and um i can also on twitter at at the movie vampire uh awesome mike any good anything to plug um i got nothing to, to plug except uh follow me on twitter um at the bt skink um all one word the letter b or t skink as in the lizard there you go nice cool hey. well thank you all for joining us yeah. the audience for fine literature uh next week we'll be talking about star wars <laughs> you betcha <laughs> okay so yeah well tweet at us uh at cinema underscore seconds let us know what your favorite shakespeare moments and shakespeare adaptations are and tell us if you're mad we didn't talk about 10 things i hate about you and uh yeah i guess we'll leave it there thank i've been ian and I'm Daniel. And thanks for listening.